I can go to a horror movie and uh, you can say to me, well, there's no monsters in the basement. But you see, I can believe my basement has a monster more easily than I can believe my neighbor will open her window and sing out to the morning. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Broadway rhythm, it's got us, everybody dance. I talk movie musicals with Professor Janine Basinger, author of a very colorful Get Happy book on the movie musical. Grab your top hat and tails and never miss an episode of Nitrateville Radio by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. And if you feel it in your feet, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. It helps other people have this song in their hearts, too. Thanks. We can't go on the road. No, we're, we're too young. We're excess baggage. Listen, are you kids willing to stick together and pull yourselves out of a hole? You bet. I've got an idea. Our folks think we're babes in arms, huh? Oh, we'll show them whether we're babes in arms or not. I'm going to write a show for us and put it on right here in Seaport. It'll be the most up-to-date thing these hicks around here have ever seen. Opening night, we'll have Max Gordon, Sam Harris, Lee Schubert down to give us the once-over. How about it, kids? (laughs) We'll get every kid in this town on our side, and we'll start right now. What do you say? Right now! Movie history has a tendency to print the legend, over and over. Yet in an age of unparalleled access to old movies, there's no excuse most of the time for not actually looking at them, with fresh eyes, before you write. That's what struck me so much about the first book by Janine Basinger I read, Silent Stars. She looked at the films of Valentino, of Pickford, of John Gilbert, with 21st century eyes and a knowledge of all that followed in stardom and how audiences relate to celebrity, making familiar, maybe over-familiar, names new again. Professor Basinger, head of film studies at Wesleyan University, brings the same approach to a genre in her most recent book, The Movie Musical, which came out last winter from Random House. She looks at how musicals made us believe in a world where people burst into song and dance in lieu of conversation, what factors made some people into Fred and Ginger and others into nobody, and how maybe it's time, again, for this supposedly dead genre. Musicals, not gonna miss their shot. I spoke with Professor Basinger at her home in New York and started by asking her where her love for musicals began. Well, you know, I've always loved musicals. I'm of the age that, you know, you really, when you went to the movies as a little person, you know, and everybody went to the movies in those days, it wasn't 
niche programming like it is now that you didn't dare take your kid because, you know, who knows what was going to be happening on the screen. Everybody took their kids and everybody went. So I, I was a very early age moviegoer. And musicals were really the big genre, especially during World War II when I was small. And, you know, so I loved them from the very beginning. I loved the color. I loved the personalities. I loved the singing and the dancing. I I loved the universe uh, that they presented. I loved the idea of a musical universe. I also loved other kinds of movies. I mean, I basically, I loved movies, but musicals were really special. So when I started teaching, uh, I one of the first courses I offered was musicals. And at that particular time, which was at the end of the 60s and the early 70s, people were like, musicals? You know, <laughs> are you crazy? And everybody told me, you're going to be sorry. The students are going to hate this. This is stupid of you. You know, and the students of course, immediately fell in love with the musicals. I remember my, you know, my my hardcore, you know, protesting students of 1970 leaping to their feet to cheer for Easter Parade, and I <laughs> thought, well, you never know till you try it, do you? You just yeah. never know. So I've always been involved and taught the course, and I, I thought a long time about writing a book on musicals, but I thought... Well, there are a lot of other books on musical personalities and things, and I, I'm just, I, no, I won't do it. But then I realized uh, the history of the musical film is really a series of cliched presentations, and I thought, you know, why not just start at the beginning? Because with musicals, you can start at a beginning because you have to have the transition to sound, really, so I could start there and really track forward and really think about all of these things, like the musical dying and the musical disappearing and and musicals evolving in a certain way. And, uh, and you know, as, as you do that, if you look at everything and you really take it seriously, and I, I spent five years on this, you know, looking at everything, re-seeing re everything I'd seen before, you really see a different kind of history emerge. And I felt that I wanted to record that history and also think about, you know, what musicals really were, how they really function, and why it's so hard to make a good one, because actually it is hard to make a good one. So that was really the purpose of the book, that and the fact that I wanted to have a lot of fun because I really love musicals. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, you did make me think about that. I mean, it's not even just that they start with with sound, but they don't exist at all yet. You know, Westerns, Westerns mm -hmm. codify as a genre, but if ultimately it's a movie set in the West, which is a real thing. Exactly. And figuring out what the movie musical was, what the use of music on film could be, was a process. Uh, and you, you talk a lot at the beginning about what exactly is a musical, you know, you can you can make a movie with Rita Hayworth in which she sings a song that becomes famous, and yet Gilda is not a musical. Exactly. Well, that's the challenge of it. You really, it's easy to oversimplify these things and just 
say, well, a musical is a movie in which somebody does a musical number. No, I mean, real Bravo, a Western, has a big musical number right in the middle of it, uh, and it is very definitely not uh, a musical. It's a Western Western, if there ever was one. And Gilda is another example of that type of thing. And so you really, it's, you really have to think about musical performance is um, not necessarily going to define the film and its entire story presentation as a musical. And why is that? I mean, one would think that it would be, but it isn't. And one of the really best examples of that is is Gilda. I mean, she not only does the famous Put the Blame on Mame number, but she does another musical number, Amado Mio, also. But that movie is definitely not a musical, and no one could make a good argument that it is. <laughs> So, you know, there you go. So I thought, well, I wanted to think about all of this and just what exactly, what are musical numbers used for when they aren't used as musicals, numbers in musicals? Why why do you have them and how does that work? And it was a lot of fun looking and thinking about it. And, um, you know, you, you find, you, you begin to understand that the musical movie designed to be in service of actual musical performance with choreography and songwriting and composition and everything is a very different entity from a movie that presents a character who's a singer and or a dancer who just does a number as part of the characterization. So I found that very interesting. Well, yeah, you kind of, at one point in the book, you kind of divide musicals into two groups. Uh, stories that gave an audience a setting where singing is logical, which the backstage musical is the obvious example, and a story that renounced reality by saying directly to the audience, this is not real. And that's something like, you know, the... Top Hat is a movie right. where these people glide into song naturally as part of their lives, and you're you're not mistaking yeah. that for neorealism. No, you're not. And also, it has been explained to you that Fred Astaire in Top Hat earns his living as a musical performer, and therefore it might be okay that he would go in a nightclub and dance or even go into a space and somewhere out in a park and dance. I mean, there's a kind of little bit of a carried forward logical, but when you finally get to movies like, say, An American in Paris, where only one character in that, well, Oscar Levant plays the piano allegedly for a living, although he doesn't <laughs> seem to be making a living, and Georges Guitry is a musical performer in a show house, a, a Broadway-type house in Paris. But nobody else is a musical performer. Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron are not. But they glide as just ordinary human beings, people like us, into expressing themselves through singing and dancing. And that's, you know, that's really um, where the musical goes. And yet it was doing that up at its beginning stages also, so the interesting thing is that it is not a forward evolution from logical reasons for musical performance to 
not having any explanation for it. It's both forms exist from the beginning, but one is easier to make and one is easier to accept on the part of audiences. And so it's more dominant than the other. Right. Well, in terms of really early musicals, I mean, obviously there's all the the review ones, and those are very much like planting a camera in the audience at, you know, the Ziegfeld Follies or whatever, and capturing a variety of performers in acts. But then you also talk about Sunnyside, or Sunnyside Up, mm-hmm. um, in which music sort of flows out of these characters in the course of their lives. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that that appears so early uh, yes, and, and yes. audiences accept it. And they did. And also it was an original Hollywood movie musical also, which so many of the early musicals were adaptations of Broadway shows. And, and it made perfect sense to put the Broadway show on screen and position the viewer in the movie audience as if he or she were actually in the best seat in the house. I mean, you know, this is what we can do for you now that there's musical movies possibility. We'll just put you in the orchestra in the very best seat you can get, and you can sit right there and look forward and see what would have been on stage for you. And maybe as a special treat, we'll take the camera close so you can see the singer better than if you were in that seat. But that's sort of what they gave you. And uh, But then suddenly, here's um, something different. I mean, first of all, it's a musical written and created in Hollywood, not on Broadway. It was fresh, and, and it also was giving a naturalism to it. Uh, the, this world you're looking at up there is a world of musical performance. Sometimes they're doing a number as if it were on stage, like turn on the heat and sometimes they're singing to each other or you know it's it's natural behavior you know b there's a song that expresses my feelings exactly aren't we all in search of happiness to each one it means a different thing to some it's wealth, to some it's health, to some it's only what love can bring. You know, it begins to evolve very early on that you could you can do it naturally if you want to. And also someone like Busby Berkeley comes in and starts using the camera to photograph the musical number in a way that clearly is not what you would see if you were sitting in a seat in a, in a Broadway house. I mean, he makes it cinematic. He takes you over the moon, as it were, down into somebody's eyeball and up and out of any kind of proscenium arch musical presentation. So these things happen early, and they're sort of like two different ways of treating the musical and they kind of coexisted but it's common to refer to the freed unit at MGM in the 40s and 50s as the emergence of the uh, what is called Hollywood art musical the fully integrated 
musical, the musical where people sing and dance in a naturalistic way as if that's what they do as they live. You know, not that they're paid musical performers, but they, they're human beings who live in a musical universe and sing and dance about their feelings as if that's what we should all be doing. Um, uh, which, God forbid, I should be doing that since I can't <laughs> carry a tune, but, you know, that was the idea. So, but these things, um, these trends were available right away. People thought of, of those, that way of doing it and had the two types of musicals. But the high point of the integrated musical comes in that era. And one of the really great contributors, of course, is what was called the Arthur Freed unit. It wasn't really a special unit at MGM, but it was the producer, Arthur Freed, and the group he brought around him to work to, to make these wonderful musicals that most people think of as the, the emergence of the art form. Well, let's let's go back. Uh, you know, when Arthur Freed was just a guy who had written "Singing in the Rain." Right. You talk about four people in particular as kind of key figures. I think in the in the development of these different strains right. of the uh, of the musical. And the first one is Lubitsch with the Love Parade. Yes, Lubitsch, of course, had even in his silent films almost a musical presentation. The way he cut and the imaginative movement he would have within the frame, the kind of way he brought things forward has a sort of lyrical quality to it. I mean, you can, if you watch a Lubitsch silent film, there are moments when you can almost hear musical, you know, presentation happening. You can easily see it. And he was someone who, um, the Love Parade um, illustrates both forms kind of side by side, but as soon as he starts doing things like One Hour With You or Merry Widow, you see right away how integrated he has his musical. He thinks that his characters can express themselves through song, through asides, and he uses a great many cinematic devices that... Um, create a kind of unreality, uh, a specialized universe for the viewer. So he was extremely important in, in reminding people that movies are not plays and movies are not novels and movies have their own language and they, through cutting in particular, can give you another kind of rhythm, another kind of control on reality. So he's a major figure in in the development of, of what ultimately becomes the most creative kind of musical. And then another one that you talk about is Ruben Mamoulian with Love Me Tonight. Although I kind of think there's a kind of a mini genre in this time of these Rogers and Hart things, which are very much driven by, I don't know, it's kind of, it kind of seems a little bit like three penny opera and some of those things that, that you just kind of have reality singing ironically yeah. about itself throughout the film. Well, Ruben Mamoulian brought, I think a kind of cosmopolitan and international quality forward Love Me Tonight, which is a movie I really like so very much. Uh, it's a wonderful musical. It, it, Rene Clair in France was doing similar things, and he 
you know, he was a very sophisticated man, Mamoulian, and he understood, you know, those influences and brought them to the American um, musical and used the the music. He he knew how to use the music and the lyrics of the music very well. And Rodgers and Hart's music lent itself to that type of thing. It has a very visual, rhythmic quality. And I think that Mamoulian was uh, is underrated in many ways. I think he he was at one time revered a great deal and and thought of as very important and has been a little bit forgotten and is now maybe being rediscovered by people again because he's a major player in musical history including Broadway where he you know he directed major hit shows and i think that he was cerebral about musicals he um he thought intellectually uh, about you know, Brechtian issues. And, you know, he, he was a thinking man about this type of thing early on, and he applied it in the commercial world of movie making, and thus was a very important figure, I think, in that regard. A custom tailor who has no custom is like a sailor. No one will trust him. But there is magic in the music of my shears. I shed no tears, lend me your ears, isn't it romantic? I mean, as much as I love Love Me Tonight and I like Hallelujah, I'm a Bomb also, which isn't Mamoulian, but again, Rogers and Hart, I kind of feel like that was a bit of a dead end. The audiences at least didn't warm to that kind of the whole neighborhood sings kind of thing. They wanted a boy and a girl in the movie who would fall in love in the course of the movie. Yes, yes. And it's so much easier and gives you so much more variety open to you to say, um, my leading characters are people who are uh, performers. Because in a movie about a guy and a girl living in Peoria, Illinois, you can have a harem number. They yeah. do, you know, in the show that, you know, you, you have freedom, you know, they can do anything. Whereas if you're working with these naturalistic, allegedly naturalistic things where they're all going to sing as a group or whatever, you're locking yourself into something. And also, audiences don't go there as easily. You have to work a little bit harder. That three-penny opera, you know, kind of, it's it's a harder form to sell to a mass audience because we know we don't sing and dance. And we know that it just, you, you have a barrier. You have to take your audience over. You have to get them through their reluctance or through their natural knowledge into that world. And that requires real skill. You know, I always say, here's the thing, like I can go to a horror movie and uh, you can say to me, well, why don't you say that about that? Because there's no monsters in the basement. But you see, wait, no, I, there there might be a monster in my basement. I, I, I can believe my basement has a monster more easily than I can believe my neighbor will open her window and sing <laughs> out to the morning. You know what I mean? And or getting stranded out on Mars is more possible for me. Look, I've been stranded. 
I've been stranded at the O'Hare airport. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a mindset here that the, we can believe in things we fear and bad things happening to us, machinery breaking down. But people singing and dancing as in daily life, listen, that's not happening, folks. And so it's harder. Yeah, I have to be seduced into believing that more, yes. more skillfully. Yes, you do. Yeah. You know, an interesting thing about uh, Love Me Tonight that I didn't really think about till you pointed it out in the book is, yes, it's a musical, but the one thing it doesn't have is choreography. Right. It's not a dancing movie. It's it's more, I mean, partly it's more the operetta tradition with Jeanette McDonald, but it's, yes. it's about people bursting into song but not performing in that in the dancing sense it makes up for that and many people have said this uh, and i think it's true it makes up for the lack of dance by the forward movement it has i mean music carrying across time and space and people running upstairs and running downstairs in unrealistic ways and and people tiptoeing away while an animal sleeps. You know, it, it, it has movement. It doesn't have choreography in the same way. Maybe that a patch number that a Chevalier does a little bit, but it doesn't have choreography, but it does have movement, a kind of musical movement with a beat um, that's timed into everything that's going on. So it doesn't feel dead and it doesn't feel like a traditional operetta as a result, at least for me, that's true. Yeah. The editor is doing yes. the dancing. Yeah. Um, well, you talk about uh, then two other figures who are, who are really critical at this time, both of whom are involved with dancing and they kind of represent the different tendencies of the musical in the, the mid thirties. Then uh, one is Fred Astaire, of course, a performer, but also uh, someone who choreographed his own dances and more to that created a real sensibility about what kind of person bursts into song and dance in the middle of the movie if they're not, as you say, deliberately on a stage in front of a an audience on screen. Right. Well, Fred Astaire is one of the most important figures in American musical history, in musical history, I mean, he's he's really uh, an amazing figure. And the more I've watched him, I've always liked Fred Astaire. Over my time of watching him over and over and looking at everything over and over and over, this guy can do no wrong. I mean, <laughs> he's he's an amazing, uh, amazingly beautiful, elegant creature, and his influence which seems he seems so at ease with everything but of course behind the scenes he was a tremendous perfectionist and very very particular about everything and he made this great statement which I like to repeat I think it's a wonderful he said either the camera will dance or I will dance <laughs> you know he's like I am not going to be cut off at the waist by the way you shoot me. I'm not going to be interrupted constantly by cutaways. I'm not going to let you 
uh, spoil the line of the dance I'm creating. And he was a man who was very well established as Fred Astaire before he ever entered the movies. And he did quickly get influence over how his numbers would be photographed. And he quickly began to dominate and be able to create with his partner in those early years, Hermes Pan, the dances the way he wanted them to be. So he's a major creative force behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera. And he said, the fewer cuts, don't interrupt, keep the dancer in the center of the frame being able to be seen head to toe so you have the purity of the dance. You see the dance as a flowing unit done by a human being whose body you can see from top to bottom. And he created choreography uh, with that in mind. And he he was not uncinematic. He he played with cinema. He would do slow motion. He would do trick things like dancing shoes and firecrackers or dancing on the ceiling. He was not anti-cinema or, you know, anti-playing with the devices, but he wanted respect for the dance and the dancer, and he had a major influence in that regard. Well, I always think of him, not that he was the director per se, but I think of him as being similar to Chaplin. People say, you know, Buster Keaton had cinema style and Chaplin didn't really have style. Well, Chaplin had a style. The style was the, yes. the job of the camera is to be looking straight at Charlie Chaplin because that's who people came to see. Absolutely. <laughs> and that is the style. And it is very similar to a stairs because he said, I want the camera to have the little tramp in the center, head to toe, except when it's necessary to come in close for the gag where you can see the monkey on my head or something. Very similar. It was about respect for the creative process that was going on in Chaplin's case, the cinema. I mean, this being the center of the comedy. Uh, there, it's two different ways. I mean, Keaton and Chaplin. I, I love Keaton. He's my favorite. And I love cinema, so I love the tricks. And I always think to myself when I'm teaching comedy, well, I love Keaton. I can't wait. The kids are going to love this. And there will also be Chaplin. And Chaplin's fine, but he's not my favorite. But then I sit down and like maybe I run the circus for my students and I'm like, oh my God, this guy is so fabulous. He's so wonderful. It's so easy to say Keaton is cinematic and Chaplin isn't, but you, that's just wrong. You know, they're, they're both using cinema, but to different ends. And Chaplin understood how to use cinema to enhance his comedy as well as Keaton did. They had two different types of comedy. One needed cinema the way Keaton uses it, and the other one needed cinema more the way Fred Astaire did. Yeah. Well, yeah, Keaton, I think, draws you into his mind a little more, which is what was the intent of the other person that you consider the the major figure in this mid-30s point, which is Busby Berkeley. And it's interesting, though, he's often talking about as a choreographer, uh, I think he was never nominated for uh, choreography or dance direction in the Oscars because they didn't think that's what he did. Well, that's right. They didn't. They, they, he, he basically, except he does sometimes have great troops of 
tap dancing, you know, armies coming at you and things like Lullaby of Broadway. But for the most part, his idea was for the dancer to stand there and he would move his camera around. He's the exact opposite. The camera does all the movement and dancing and the bodies, the alleged dancing bodies, are more entities that he photographs to create um, a movement that is kaleidoscopic, that's related to your eye and what you're seeing. So he isn't actually creating original dance steps and routines. He's creating formations and... um, multiplication table approaches <laughs> to the human form and what he does is really cinematic and wonderful and the thing he's very very important to history because he does prove that the movie dance can be is cinematic he does say you couldn't see this in a broadway theater you're going into Ruby Keeler's eyeball and you're going to go down inside it and find a whole lot of other Ruby Keelers. You know, I mean, what he does is he takes the musical dance form into a layered cinematic universe of unreality, but keeps the human form in it. And so it's just something incredibly different and quite wonderful and exciting, it's just that there's no real place to go with that. I mean, once you've been doing that for a few years, now that's what it is, and it isn't related to the warmth of a boy and girl falling in love or two characters making comedy. It's more, um, it's a more technical formation-based universe of tradition that doesn't lend itself to the kind of movie people wanted to go and see as easily as the Astaire movie, point of view did. Well, it's interesting that he winds up at MGM in the 40s where you know, really the philosophy right. is, is very much the opposite. It's, you know, heartfelt right. moments between Judy Garland and whomever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And meanwhile, you know, Berkeley wants to have giant bananas going up and down. So <laughs> Well, that was at 20th Century Fox. That was at Fox, they, right. They, but, they let him have bananas over there. They were more bananas than, than, than MGM. But MGM was so star-driven, I mean, for one thing, made a difference. But, of course, uh, MGM did have Esther Williams, one of their biggest box office stars of the 40s and into the uh, mid-40s and into the 50s. And the water ballets that they needed to have done for her worked well for Busby Berkeley because he essentially what he was doing was a kind of spectacle. And so they were able to put him to good use directing her and creating things for her. But other things where he was doing something with, with stars didn't work as well. Uh, And, you know, he, um, he had a more checkered career also partly because of his own personal problems. Right. So, you know, maybe it would have worked better for him 
at 20th Century Fox. He had the success with the gangs all here or, you know, over at Metro, but it, it, it didn't, he didn't work well with Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland on the, he, he was, it just didn't, wasn't quite the same thing. Well, and the, and the, you know, you think about like the musical ballets. I mean, you can't do the boy and the girl together in a pool. It's just silly. You know, imagine Esther Williams and Frank Sinatra in a pool trying to sing to each other. It's just not going to (laughs) work. So, well, right. Well, she swims and gets out, and then yeah. he sings to her. And there are a few times when there's music over, like when she and Ricardo Montalban are swim. But it's just tricky. It's tricky. There's no question about it. Those those lend themselves best to spectacle. And uh, when when they used Berkeley in that regard, you know, Esther Williams dropping from the sky and, you know, all kinds of sparklers and everything, then that, that works nicely. Well, besides those four, uh, another person that you seem to regard as pretty important in sort of bringing the musical to its peak, even though he really only made one of them, is James Whale with Showboat. Yes, well, James Whale, I mean, he's a wonderful director with anything he does, but he really, I think, made the 1936 showboat into just a beautiful, beautiful movie that kept the the tradition of the operetta and of the adaptation of something from Broadway alive. I think he's very important, and of course, showboat is, you know, one of the most important um, Broadway shows uh, in terms of creating the modern operetta or the modern musical. And the fact that he made such a wonderfully successful version of it in 1936 really helped to keep that tradition alive also. Showboat, of course, is a dramatic piece, and it uh, allows people to remember that you can have tragedy and sad things inside of musical plots and still have it work. Um, I think Showboat 36 is one of the really great movie musicals. Um, I I like it a lot. Well, I think it it really shows a lot of a lesson that should have been observed by a lot of the people making musicals in the 60s and 70s, which is it's very sensitive to the emotional state of the performers, and it stays out of their way. Yes, yes, I totally agree with that. He understood what he was supposed to be doing with people like Paul Robeson and Helen Morgan and, you know, Irene Dunn when they were doing their musical numbers. And he put the machinery of cinema to use in serving these performers their emotional needs that they were portraying and the beautiful, wonderful songs they were singing, which were a form of speaking to the viewer about how they felt. And he did that brilliantly. Now, in the next section of the book, I kind of expected you to go through it historically in terms of, I suppose, studios and major producers. So we would have had a Warner Brothers musical section and we would have had an Arthur Freed section. And actually, you focus on stars instead, which I thought was interesting, but it makes total sense in that so much of it is about finding stars who can be exciting performers that people will 
take to, and then finding vehicles for those stars that yes. will work for them, and that their personas make sense with on screen. Um, so let's just go back to the beginning. I mean, you talk quite a bit about Jolson, Al Jolson. And I mean, right. there's somebody, I mean, as you say, he basically, if he wasn't playing someone actually named Al or Al Jolson, he was playing <laughs> yeah. someone who might as well have been named Al Jolson. Please play that again, will you? Climb up on my knees, funny boy. Though you're only three, funny boy. He's a great example of the gigantically powerful musical persona that could put it on film and make it work, which seems a little odd because it, he's so bombastic. And, of course, he knew how to sing and hit it in the, in the lady in the back row and right. to try to tame that and put it down on film. And especially this creature who, you know... Um, is so kind of noisy, I guess, in every way. But the thing about Jolson was that he, he, he needed an audience. I mean, he worked off the audience. So for him to become a movie personality where he's essentially not performing to an audience in front of him and not getting that feed and not, not responding to what he's feeling coming from them, that's you know unusual that that could happen. But it did happen, and he he was an enormously popular personality, and he could sell it. He could sell music, and so he he really did so much to make the musical work and to make it popular. And he's he's that transition guy there where you see moving from someone who was a definitely in front of an audience performer, transferring that over to film successfully. It's very interesting to observe that because the next really big musical personality that comes up is Bing Crosby, who from the beginning is a creature of the microphone. He was a radio personality, and he didn't have to shout it out to the guy in the back row. I mean, he did, of course, perform live with, you know, Paul Whiteman and everything, but, but his big success became uh, came really through radio and then through film, and he's such a much bigger movie star than people realize, I think, today. And so you have that transition of seeing how personalities could come across and Jolson is a very important player in the development of the musical personality on film. And you know, movies' success in those early studio years, it's always about stars and stories. Stars and stories. And yes, studios had style. And I do have a chapter on studio style in musicals. And they had things that they were most famous for making, a type of work, a type of movie. Um, but when musical presentation was one thing, they did imitate each other. They, they did definitely imitated each other. You know, this is the kind of thing where we oversimplify. Warner's made gangster movies. Well, you know what? 
so did MGM. Right. So did Columbia. So did 20th Century. You know, we forget that they imitated each other because they were in business and where they developed their own brand at, because they had stars and directors and designers and writers under contract, they also imitated what was successful uh, by their rivals. And so we, we tend to forget that, you know, you need to take a look at everything. I'm old enough that I was able to have seen so many movies that my students will never be able to catch up because, you know, it's just not possible uh, because I was there for it. And, you know, I worry as a historian, I do worry about the oversimplification, uh, the cliches that we fall into about, you know, the role of women in movies on screen, uh, even also behind the screen, all the things that we oversimplify and are putting down as kind of rules that may or may not actually be right. You know, I always worry. And uh, when you live long enough, I always tell my students this, you live to the age where you see the decades you lived through being defined and characterized in ways that perhaps were not how you lived them. Uh, and you kind of like, oh, uh, can we think about that for a moment? You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't recognize the 1950s of the classroom as I lived them as a high school and college student. What's fun for doing a book like the one I've done here is I did look at everything again. I'd seen, you know, there weren't many musicals available that I hadn't seen at least once, but there were some. But I not only looked at the ones I hadn't seen, but I looked at everything that I knew very well. Had even I worked in a movie theater as an usher, sometimes I'd seen one 50 times. I, I still, and I've taught them, but I went back and I looked at everything again. I wanted to look and say, what is this really? I mean, what is the real story here? And I went through variety year by year and marked every musical film just to see how many musicals were really released in this year where they say musicals were dead. You do get a different picture when you do that. You get a different picture. Let's talk about, there was another contrast that was I thought was interesting in terms of stars kind of uh, making it or not making it. And you talk about, you know, the huge success Doris Day had. But not long before that, you're talking about Mary Martin, who was sort of given every chance to take off on film. And it just didn't happen, even though she was a major stage player. And later, you know, successful with the, you know, Peter Pan on television, which I remember mm -hmm. as a kid, and which... You know, I didn't realize how many times that she had done it on live TV before the one that, you know, yeah. was eventually f filmed properly so they could show mm -hmm. it over and over. But uh, how did one of them become a star and the other not? 
You know, we have the great mystery of stardom. And as you know, I did write a book on that subject. Like, uh, go figure is really what it should be called. Because, uh, you know, my book on the star machine addresses this issue. Why does one person become a star and the other one not? Well, there's so many possible conjectures, but no real answer, obviously, to the question. But in Doris Day's case, the moment she appeared on film in Romance of the High Seas, she became a star. She had warmth and naturalism. She could really sing. She had been used to standing up in front of audiences and making the lyrics she was singing intimate for the people out there. And she just worked. It just worked. Who knows? It worked. She became the biggest, over time, longest top box office star in Hollywood history. Mary Martin, who was such a success on Broadway, who could sing, who could act, who could do all kind, do comedy, why could she not succeed in film? Well, there are a couple of things. One is she looks a lot on film like Jean Arthur, uh, and so she wasn't distinctive. She didn't have a kind of distinctive look to her. And the movies that they put her in, she would get eclipsed by a Bing Crosby or a Jack Benny or somebody, and she just didn't seem to be able to do that thing that they say, register, register in the frame. She didn't, she kind of faded into the celluloid in some way. And if it was the material they gave her, but they tried her, they gave her so many opportunities, put her in different kinds of films, but she would always get upstaged by somebody or just kind of not be able to make her mark. And uh, there's no real answer to that. She found her defining roles on Broadway. When she returned to Broadway, she found the thing that she could do that defined her. She did not find it in film. Well, yeah, it kind of made me think, too, of uh, George M. Cohan. I saw The Phantom President at Capitol Fest a year or two ago. And, you know, he's no James Cagney, is all you can say. that's all you can say. (laughs) It doesn't light up the screen. (laughs) Not even remotely. And he's the whole show in that movie, Um, which is an interesting movie, too, but he just doesn't have that presence that works inside the frame. Why There's a quality that some people have that makes them seem alive and to be real in front of you in the frame and that makes audiences feel that they can tell what the person in the movie is thinking or feeling. It's like we can read their interiors or hear their inner voices or something. And it's a strange, inexplicable quality. Some have it, some don't. And, you know, I, as I say, I, did, I, I wrote a whole book on this. I, I'm right. tremendously interested in that. And Hollywood worked very hard to find what that quality, that X thing was, 
because obviously they, if they could manufacture a star like a Doris Day, they were going to make a lot of money creating vehicles for her. And they wanted to find that. And they often thought they had someone who had it, and it turned out not to be true. And Mary Martin was is a very good example of that because there's no question about her basic talent. Yeah, ultimately... You have to throw the spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks. There's just exactly. no other way. No other way. Um, you also talk a lot about uh, duos and what makes a successful duo. Um, the first one really is uh, Jeanette McDonald with her second, the second person that she was teamed with a lot, not Maurice Chevalier, but Nelson Eddy. I've painted, etched, and carved a bit. A bit of what? I've sculpted and sketched and starved at it. Starved? Do you know Formandelite? Yep, and I do know you divine. They work. You know, it's so unfashionable to say how great they are, but the truth is they are. Somebody once told me that I, a, a Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy fan, and by the way, those people are legion. They're out there. They're crouched behind <laughs> bushes to jump out and strangle you if you say anything bad, and God bless them for that, um, wrote me and said, you always admit that, that Nelson and Jeanette are great, but it's like you're apologizing for them. So <laughs> I, I, I apologize for my apology <laughs> because... They are really quite wonderful, and um, the material that they were given by MGM, they, they mounted these films beautifully. They were lavishly done. They're charming. They're, they have beautiful sets and costumes, and Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald played very well together. And if you look at Naughty Marietta, their first movie, you can see it's really very peppy and saucy, and they're playful with each other, and they're credible as people who would really get attracted to each other. And what happens is they're beautifully paired musically. They perform their music together very well and as if it matters. And when you're watching the movie, you feel that. And it's easy to see why they were so successful especially in the 1930s. I mean, it, it's, it just works between them. It, it really does. Well, yeah, people talk about escapism as, you know, usually representing it with, you know, Berkeley's wild visual fantasies. But I think they're, you know, they were so successful in the 30s, such big box office hits. I mean, if anything is escapism, it's that world that they live in of, of you know, sort of operetta-tinged, yes. mm -hmm. Middlebrow high art, uh, right, right. You know, and sort of uh, chocolate cake decoration sets. <laughs> exactly, beautiful clothes she's wearing with ruffles and sparkles, and he has uniforms, and they have, you know, this and the music. The operetta has have lovely music and songs that have been popular for decades, and you know, it's a world to just escape into. Absolutely, there's. There's no, uh, and I hope we're not apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other duo, obviously, is is Fred and Ginger. And you talk quite a bit about, you know, what seems kind of central to the, to the whole musical, and they're the best example of it, which is basically if a movie is about boy meets girl, it's kind of a, about seduction. 
and you have to find a metaphor in some way for for seduction, not least because of the production code, but also just really to have a story that lasts 80 or 90 minutes. Right. Um, and so there's many ways to do that. I mean, screwball comedy duos getting into slapstick brawls is as much a way of staving off the you know the the reality yeah. of, of seduction as dancing mm-hmm. is and Astaire and Rogers particularly rise raise that to such a height there's a quote you say uh Astaire and Rogers were the promise that movies made to ordinary viewers like you inside you behind your looks there is something else something desirable and special and eternal and the way that Fred kind of brings that out and makes Ginger realize that about him and the two of them together and all of that. I mean, that's the subject of almost every one of their dances. Yes, it is. And their dances express all the yearning, all the love, all the possible physicality that is beautiful and free and expressive. You know, people, you don't have to be uh, an expert on choreography to to understand what the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers number is telling you. You don't have to have the lyrics even, although they help in some numbers, but you can see and feel the physicality of movement and expressiveness that is contained in in their seduction dances and in their playful courting dances and in their um, unhappy breakup dances. And it's all, anybody can feel it. It's universal. And it is a beautiful way to to say all kinds of things from the basic thing of sexual attraction to the uh, highest thing of I want a partner, someone who understands who I really am inside and the things I have to give that I, I know I have. You know, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, they're absolutely exquisite together. I think they are perfection, really. Well, and it's interesting. You disagree with the famous Catherine Hepburn line that is everybody's shorthand for Fred and Ginger that, uh, yep. he, you know, she gave him... He gave her class and she gave him sex. Right. I do because, you. well, you know, the thing is, are we really to assume, I mean, I don't think of Ginger Rogers as not having class. You know, I, I do explain it in the book exactly what I mean by that, but there's such a wonderfully sensual and physical quality to Fred Astaire, how I mean, really, if you really look at his dances and you really see how he brings her forward and brings her out, I mean, when he seduces her in the night and day dance in Gay Divorce, I mean, that he, it's very sexy. And when she, um, when she can act, she brings her considerable acting skill into small moments in their movies, like in Follow the Fleet, when she... She sees him after they've broken up and, and they they return to to find each other again. I mean, there's a lot of elegance. And you, you have to figure that these two people had long, long careers. They didn't have the Fred and Ginger movies, 10 of them, nine in the 1930s and a comeback movie in the 40s. They had massive careers. 
I mean, he had a whole, they both had Broadway careers before they ever came to Hollywood. And then they had massive careers without each other. He danced with a million other people. She won an Oscar for dramatic roles. I mean, it's like these people are not defining each other alone in that regard. If she didn't have some kind of elegance to her and what she could do, or if he didn't have some kind of sensuality that is felt as elegant as it is, it's still very much present. I just don't think that that works for me. Um, It's too oversimplified. I do go into a big explanation of it in the book, but, you know, they can buy the book, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But I, I, I do think it's one of those oversimplified cliches. And it, it's almost, it's kind of like it says he doesn't have any sex appeal and she's classless. And I don't think that's fair to either one of them, really. I mean, what I think happens in their dances is really, you know, two people fall in love and it's like they have a secret, a secret about each other and about who they are together. And she, in particular conveys really well because he's he's always chasing her so we know how he thinks and it's her the dawning realization of it in her is the drama and you know she she just captures that better than almost anything else in cinema that sort of realization and that secret inside you and the excitement of that and you know and, and the importance of that to you and the fact that it's all wordless is, you know, is part of what makes it work so well. You know, yes. she's not and having a conversation. Hey, Helen Broderick, let me tell you about this guy. You know, it's not right. like that at exactly. all. Exactly. And, and also she has to earn him on the dance floor. He has to earn her in the plot. He has to chase her and get her, but, but she has then to earn him on the dance floor. And, uh, and there's passion in his dancing with her, which is sexy. And there's class in in her. Like, just think about, you know, Never Gonna Dance in Swing Time, which is one of my favorites. The elegant, classy way she accepts that she's going to lose him and she resigns herself to dance with him one last time. You know, it, it, there's there's a lot. It's very beautiful. Does she dance very beautifully? Who? The girl you're in love with. Yes. Very. The girl you're engaged to. The girl you're going to marry. Oh, I don't know. I've danced with you. I'm never going to dance again. And um, both of these two people were performing as children, and they they were talented. They had a similar work ethic, and they were perfectionists, both of them. They wanted to be the very best they could be. And I think that, you know, sometimes those things get overlooked. I think the way you express was very nice. I, I like I like what you said. I, I, I think it's very much, it does say what makes them work and why they've stood the test of time because 
they really, really have. Astaire put love and sex into his dancing, and Rogers put class in the way she carried herself, um, and and into whatever silly dialogue she was given. And they both did it with or without each other, decade after decade. These are very special people here. My sister was a huge uh, Ginger Rogers fan. Uh, yeah, not me least too, she has me a, too. Well, she, and particularly, I think she has a little bit of a resemblance to her, a similar type. So she oh. very much identified with her even as a child. Mm-hmm. And we went to see in, you know, Summerstock, Ginger Rogers and Sid Caesar in a version of Anything Goes, which was full of wow. cheap, cheap yeah. audience pandering jokes and stuff like that. Yeah. But nevertheless, <laughs> uh, it was fun. And then afterwards, we went to the stage door and she came out and she was very grand and, you know, greeted her fans sort of like the queen greeting people. Yeah. You know, yeah. and Sid Caesar was kind of like, hey, how are you, how are you doing there, pal? You know. Um, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a nice Hollywood moment, and one of the few times I've met anybody who really belonged to that era. So, I saw Ginger Rogers in person many times, even in some of the stinker shows that she did, right. like The Pink Jungle, and uh, you know, and really, yes, they t- she took her stardom seriously. She she knew the role she was to play, both on and off stage, and right. I. You know, you got to hand it to these people who, the people who learned how to be stars in the studio system felt very strongly they were not to let their fans down. They were to give them that Hollywood moment. <laughs> Just great. Well, let's talk about one other uh, duo, hugely important and important to each other uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. Good morning. It's a lovely morning. Good morning. What a wonderful day. Dance the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning. Do you how do you do? I I love them together. I think they're wonderful, and they're a different case. They they came together. You know, they were they were kids who were working before they were even old enough to know they were working. Yeah. They just thought that was what life was. And they were people that probably there was no one else in the world who could really understand the, them the way the other could. I mean, they grew up in similar circumstances. They had difficult lives. They they knew they had to deliver. They were supporting their families, they, you know, these are two people who were workhorses as children. They were put to work, and they were able to get in each other's groove in a way I think that was really, really perfect. They, they, as I say in my book, they survived together as much as they performed together, and they didn't make a lot of um, big musicals together. They were in the Andy Hardy series, and they were in things like Thoroughbreds Don't Cry, but they had those really four grand musicals there in 3940 area that really were big hits, and they're wonderful together. They um, they convey us, it's a manic sense, but it's a great sense of fun and uh, high level of talented performance skill from those two. So we get into... 
MGM and the Freed unit and all of that. Although, as you point out, there was a lot going on at MGM. There are also units with Joe Pasternak and Jack Cummings. Right, Turning right. out, you know, creditable musicals. But Freed's group, and particularly with Gene Kelly, um, that's a high point of, of one strain of musicals anyway. The somewhat yeah. intellectualized, integrated songs and story kinds of musicals. Yes, and, and those are what many people think of when they think of the Hollywood movie musical. They think of Singing in the Rain, I mean, definitive. And uh, Gene Kelly was a very important force in the development of the musical. He had a very um, high aspirations. Like Astaire, he was also a perfectionist. And what he really did a lot, I believe, was bring the sense of cinema fully into the choreography, that the camera is part of the choreography, the editing is part of the choreography, and you really want to be cinematic and really present a musical number as only a film could present it, not present it just as a proscenium arch event in front of the viewer in the frame, but incorporate cinema into the dance. Try to make it kinetic. Try to make it a more three-dimensional art form. And, and he's very important in that regard, I feel. Can it be I like myself She likes me so I like myself if someone wonderful as she is can think I'm wonderful, I must be. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned it just in a uh, footnote, but I think a big influence on them at that point is The Red Shoes, the British uh, yes. ballet musical. Um, not only because it's it's deliberately arty, um, and it was a big hit in the U.S., it made a lot of money, probably the most money of any British import film during that time period. And as my mother says, uh, if you took ballet at some point, your whole class went to see The Red Shoes. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, yes. But, uh, you Still know, does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that sense of musicals could not only be that seriously dramatic, but kind of working toward being high art in that sense, which we come to the funny fact that American in Paris achieved that and won the Oscar, and now everybody loves the quick one they tossed off after American in Paris, uh, Singing in the Rain. I know. <laughs> well, you know, as I say, Singing in the Rain is the musical for people who who hate musicals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, or, or who love them too, but ironically, people who really don't like musicals can like Singing in the Rain. Because it's so funny. So yeah. it endures. It endures in a way that nothing else can. I mean, it gets revived easily be, because of that, you know? Yeah. And so the truth is that they poured everything they had into an American in Paris, but it won the Oscar for them, and, and it, it inspired the Academy to give Gene Kelly a special Oscar. And so, you know, it, it accomplished what it wanted for them. There had been ballets on film really before. I mean, if you look at Yolanda and the Thief and, and, and other things, The Red Shoes is in 1948. So around that time, 
people are starting to put more isolated ballet num- ballet-ish numbers in. But it's kind of like Citizen Kane. It's not that we didn't see low ceilings before or even have an out-of-order flashback narrative before. We had had those things before. But Citizen Kane pulled it all together and made you conscious of it. And American in Paris pulled the concept of a serious ballet number into a a popular musical and made everyone aware and made everyone take it seriously and think about it. So its accomplishment was big in that regard. People just had more fun at Singing in the Rain. And you can revive Singing in the Rain much more safely and easily than you can in American in Paris. At least that's been my experience. Well, and I kind of feel that way about a number of the MGM musicals, that they're, they're a bit overstuffed uh, at times. Yeah, people do feel that way, and, and there's a, particularly at this point in history, there's less popularity for Gene Kelly, at least now I'm speaking among, you know, I teach, and so I'm showing, and I program things, so I'm, I'm showing things. I uh, find that to be true, that, you know, things go in and out of fashion, and the there is the quality to the freed unit work that people find it, the middle class attempt to be arty, that this is not its most popular moment in history, right. I would say. Now, the other major uh, figure in musicals at MGM around this time is Vincente Minnelli. Who I thought it was, it was interesting you point out that he actually made more non-musicals than musicals, which I guess that's true, but you know, if you, if you say that name, a picture from the pirate comes into my head. So Yes, people think of Minnelli as a musicals director, um, but he's a great director of comedies and also melodramas, and he has a very strong, really, it's very hard to be an auteur of a musical because as a director, because, you know, truly you've got, you have auteur directors, but you, your personality, your musical personalities really dominate. And then you have the music and the composers and you have the art decoration. I mean, that's true in all films, but in musicals, those things really are dominant. It's such a collaborative uh, event. It's such a collaborative thing. But with a comedy or a melodrama, a directorial hand can be exercised a little more. And you see that Minnelli's ability to create the decor that expresses meaning uh, is very, very strong in any kind of movie. And it's something that he brought to musicals that was very, very important, the sense of the setting of the music, the the thing that makes you believe the world that the person is living in would be a place where someone could sing and dance. And Minnelli was very good at that. I think he's one of the truly great directors of uh, American musicals. And I also really love his melodramas and comedies. I'm I'm a fan of his work. She came at me in sections, more curves than a scenic railway. She was bad. She was dangerous. I wouldn't trust her any farther than I could throw her. She was selling hard, 
but I wasn't buying. All right, so now we get to the 1960s. Seemingly, the musical is on top. You have huge hits in The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady and Mary Poppins, and they're all... It's the time that musicals won the Best Picture Oscar the most. Uh, yes. West Side Story, uh, My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, Oliver. And yet, uh, pretty soon, you're calling a chapter the death of the musical. So what happened in the 60s? Well, it's the death of the musical, question mark. I mean, because they didn't <laughs> quite die. They hung on gamely. But, you know, the, one of the main things always that has to be pointed out is that the Hollywood studio system that formed up at the end of the silent era and that dominated the 40s and the 50s really began to collapse and fall apart in the 1960s. It really was pretty much over by 1960, but certainly throughout that decade, it it died out totally as a result of various kinds of issues, uh, one of which, the main thing being, of course, the Paramount decrees, the legal decisions that were made that forced the studios to divest themselves of their... um, theater chains and stopped their practices of block booking. You had the rise of television. You had the influx of more foreign films that brought a new kind of sensibility to the viewer. You had stars deflecting, uh, leaving the studios, not either the studio didn't renew their contract or they didn't renew their contract. And musicals require a, a lot they you you need designers you need choreographers you need arrangers you need you need musicians you need uh, dance troops to rehearse you you know and all of this began to break down and go away so making musicals not only became more difficult but became more and more expensive and um, people stopped going to the movies in the high numbers that they had gone to in the 30s as they stayed home and watched more TV or whatever. And things just shifted and changed. And these changes, particularly the collapse of the studio system, made it more difficult to make musicals. And finally, of course, tastes changed. Um You know, you came to the end of the 60s, the Vietnam War was a major influence on how audiences were thinking and and feeling and seeing, and you just, everything just shifted in ways that were unfavorable to the concept of a big, expensive, escapist, if you want to use that term, musical picture. And you weren't getting the studios developing musical performers and stars in the same way. You didn't have composers under contract. Everything shifted. So it it just got harder. And um, when American film turned more serious, they were making fewer films. And audience taste was working toward the more violent, the more uh, downer kind of thing. It was hard to find a musical piece of work that was appropriate, that could could sell at the box office. Well, you know, there there definitely were 
new stars in Julie Andrews and Barbara Streisand. Yes. But I feel it's just part of it was just the elephantiasis of the form. If you spend three years making an enormously expensive Julie Andrews musical and it flops, then that's it. You know, there's not... Well, yeah. People start, the people making them start learning, wait a minute, it took us three years. We had to round up an army of people, musicians, composers, everybody, designers. It took three years, and it cost a fortune, and we lost money. Wait, let's rethink this. Um, there were things, of course, Sound of Music, right, in the middle comes out and makes a fortune, but, you know, it got more complicated and viewers were not, you weren't getting the same generation of people who were raised on them, who just really wanted to see musicals and the whole thing shifted really. And two stars were formed, two big stars emerged instead of maybe what 30, maybe 20 or 30. I mean, that's a big difference. Yeah. And I think a lot of them were just, they were one-offs. There was never going to be another one yes. like it. I think of something like Fiddler on the Roof. It's a very good version of it. It made a lot of money. But there's no Fiddler on the Roof 2. <laughs> you know, there's not that follow-up that's going right. to come right in its footsteps. That's right. There was no place to go. You might have, I mean, you might have one big success, but there was no place to go. And were you going to spend another three years trying to make something? And they were looking for material already established. They didn't have the composers and everything under contract. I mean, so how many Broadway shows were succeeding that you could adapt? The whole thing just became more difficult. Right. There is one figure, though, who kept using the the musical, or one studio, kept using the musical, and really kind of it's become a subsidiary of that corporation now, which is Disney. Uh, Yes. Even going back into the 70s, music was a big part of their animated films, but especially uh, beginning with, you know, the Beauty and the Beast and, and Aladdin and so many of those. I mean, that's, that's really where the musical lives now, is in Disney films. Yes. The great thing, and I do cover this, is that two th- Disney, Disney kept the musical alive, and also the concert film started to grow up, which kept a form of it alive, or the biopic. But Disney created audiences for the future, because people took their children to these Disney musicals and bought the first the videotape and then the DVD of these musicals so that children were allowed to constantly watch musicals, which gave them an appetite for musicals and which made them accept the idea of the musical form, even though it was an animated form. The idea of musical was not so foreign to them. And at the same time, around a certain date comes MTV that is presenting to young viewers, teenagers, music fans, little tiny miniature musicals so that things were working in the culture and in the universe that were keeping the ideas of musicals alive and the desire for musicals that I think is really finally sort of maybe being capitalized on now as more musicals are beginning to appear. Well, yeah, you talk about, uh, with no particular fondness, uh, La La Land as yeah. a modern musical, but it's kind of more interesting to me that we got another version of A Star is Born, which is truly a property you cannot kill, 
and that that it continues to be updated for the singing styles and presentation styles of another age. I mean, that is the quintessential backstage musical in which every every song is is excused by the fact that we're talking about professional performers. Yeah, I, I think I agree that A Star is Born can never be killed, and that's fine with me. It's a great story, and I'm happy to have seen a new version as well done as that one was, and I'm happy to see the emergence of all these biopics that people like that are musical, and to see musicals like The Greatest Showman that are really old-fashioned musicals updated with great singing and dancing, and that audiences discover them and love them. That film was panned by critics, and audiences went out and found it, and word of mouth made it a hit. I mean, that's a great thing. I personally didn't care for La La Land. I didn't make a secret of that. I I hope I showed it the respect that I feel it's due, uh, but I, I don't want to see a music. Look, I spent my whole life going to musicals. I don't need a musical in which the leads can't sing and dance. I just don't <laughs> need that. I don't need that. Thank you. Anyway, I don't need that. And for me, it just didn't work. It didn't have the magic, and it didn't really understand, I thought, the rules of musical presentation. But this is my opinion, and for all of you out there who love it, don't write me. (laughs) I know it's okay with me that you love it, so let it be okay with you that I don't. (laughs) Um, But, you know, what, what we see are that musicals are alive, and people are wanting to make them and are wanting to see them. And um, the, the question is, what, what is the musical that will work for the modern world? Uh, what will work for the modern audience? And how do you freshen it? How do you link it to what, peop- is, what people need when they go to one? And uh, what will be the future? But at least there will be a future for musicals, I believe, which at one point it looked like, well, maybe that wasn't going to be true. Yeah, they are kind of like Westerns in that same way that they're... Yes. They, every time one comes out, it's it refutes yes. the, the accepted notion that they're dead, but doesn't entirely exactly. disprove it. Uh, right. Well, I suppose the the future of the musical at the moment is whatever comes of Hamilton. Yes, that's right. And if if it if it could duplicate the success even partially that it had on Broadway, I think it would give a great um uh, a great boost of energy to the idea of musicals, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you're teaching you're teaching young people. Do you think they take to musicals or is it kind of a well, we went to the museum and saw the old thing? Well, no, my students love them. They're, my students, the students that we have in our major are wonderfully open to all kinds of old movies, including silent and including dead alleged genres like westerns and musicals. And of course, they love the most, they love film noir. They love an international uh, potpourri of movies. They love Iranian movies. They love Bollywood. They love Asian movies. They love European movies, they love documentaries and anime. They they are open, thank God, and wonderfully welcoming 
of all kinds of movie experiences, and um, they appreciate Westerns. We have a Westerns course going right now that the students are finding how much they they really respect and love these movies, and the same is true for musicals. So we have a we have a good sense of it here. We have a silent film class with musical accompaniment by Ben Modell, and it's. Um, the students love these things, and they're open to them. So I'm hopeful that they will be part of a new generation that will keep all the things that that you and I love uh, alive and appreciated. So I'm left without a penny. The wolf was discreet. He left me my feet and soul. I put them down on anything but the La Belle, the perfectly swell romance. Never gonna dance, never gonna dance, only gonna love, never gonna dance. Thanks to my guest, Janine Basinger, and to Amy Hagedorn at Random House. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. A link to The Movie Musical by Janine Basinger will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, please leave a rating and a review at iTunes. Thanks, and we'll be back in a few weeks.